Good morning. I promise to be your faithful husband. I promise to love and comfort you, honor and keep you, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, in poverty or in wealth, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, forsaking all others, cleaving only to you as long as we both shall live. How many of you have said that to someone else? Okay, yeah, or something similar. It may not have been exactly those words, but something similar to that. Those are the traditional marriage vows that we state at the time of our wedding when we are marrying our true love, the one that we plan to and hope to live together with for the rest of our lives until or as long as we both shall live is what we say. Some of you may recognize this name. Her, Her name is Esther Pauline Friedman Letterer. She was a syndicated columnist who wrote an advice column from 1955 until 2002. She was featured in approximately 1,200 newspapers, and uh, she reached an estimated audience of 90 million readers with each column. Some of us in the older generation will remember her under her pseudonym, Ann Landers. She was known as the Answer Lady, and her column was called Ask Ann Landers. Her advice to married couples was always to stick it out, no matter what. Whatever was happening, stick it out. Marriage is worth it. As a young, I was 17 years old, and I remember a particular column that came out on July 1st, 1975. I don't remember much of what she wrote, although I would read her column because I used to deliver the newspaper in which the column was written. But in 1975, I was 17 years old, and the column that came out that day is forever burned in my memory. At the head of every column she wrote, there was always some kind of a a heading. And the heading that day on the top of her column was not only the heading of her column, but was actually the um, emblazoned on the front page of the newspaper as the headline news of the day. And it said this, the lady with all the answers does not know the answer to this one. And in the column that day, she wrote, that the marriage to her husband of 36 years was going to end in divorce. He wanted a divorce, and she wrote that this was the most difficult column I have ever tried to put together. And I remember at 17 years old, that July afternoon, reading this, and it, it really bothered me, and it still bothers me. And I remember feeling sick about it, Divorce was not supposed to happen, and it certainly was not supposed to happen to someone who had all the answers and was always telling everybody else how to stick it out no matter what. She was a champion of marriage, 
And what seemed scandalous in 1975 is actually commonplace in 2019, and so much so that we hardly give it a thought. The statistics about marriage and divorce, if you look them up on the internet or some other source, they're inconsistent. So I'm not gonna state authorita authoritatively the percentage of um, marriages that end in divorce. I'll give you some statistics. Uh, statistics range from about 30% to 50% of all marriages end in divorce. So there's that range. According to the Encyclopedia of Psychology, about 40 to 50% of married couples in the United States divorce. The divorce rate to subsequent marriages is even greater. As of 2018, um, the marriage rate is 6.8 people per thousand total population. So just Think of that number in your head for a second. Of the entire population, which would include old people and babies, for every thousand people that live in the United States, 6.8 of those people get married in a given year. And the divorce rate in any given year is 3.2 of the same population. So this is what they call the crude divorce rate. It just simply means that if you take those statistics, it looks like more than 50% of the marriages end in divorce. In addition to this, as we look at statistics, marriages themselves are falling at an alarming rate. People simply aren't getting married as they were in the past. Those numbers are down considerably, down by about 45% in the last decade as couples are choosing to simply live together rather than committing to one another in marriage. And as a result of this, it's affected society. It's affected every single one of us sitting here in this room. Immorality, sexual immorality, is rampant as a result of this. The family unit that really is the strongest unit um, in our society is being demolished. Children become the casualties and our country is crumbling from within. And in effect, we are at war and we are losing the war. And we are witnessing the fall of our country without a single shot being fired. Statistically, there is one divorce every 13 seconds in the United States. Nine divorces will occur during the two minutes it takes a couple to recite the vows of their marriage. So as I read that at the very beginning, statistically there were 13 divorces that took place. Over two million people will divorce per year in the United States. And it's not just a problem in the US. There are other countries, Russia in particular, that actually has the highest divorce statistics in the world. It's rampant throughout our globe. It is a very sad commentary on our lack of commitment to one another and our lack of love. And we have left a trail of broken promises broken families, and broken hearts. 
Although one would expect that evangelicals would be quite different, and I think if you were to take a poll here at our assembly, you would find some amazing statistics of very long-lasting marriages. Peggy and John were married for well over 50 years. Uh, the Brutons were married for 59. Others have been married for 60. My parents celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary. Um, and I, I think of others who have gone for <clears throat> 40 years. I think the most amazing statistics in all of it is that Krista has put up with me for 36 years. And I think that's the uh, demonstration of what real love is. You would expect evangelicals to have the lowest divorce rate in our society, but the statistics show that 26% of those who call themselves evangelicals, uh, their marriages end up in divorce. In fact, it is statistically better to be a farmer. Farmer's divorce rate is at 7.63% versus 26% if you're classified as an evangelical. So it might be better to be an evangelical farmer and you might have more success. In our study on the Sermon on the Mount, we have the King of Kings laying the foundation for his kingdom. And Jesus discusses the issue of divorce that had become rampant in his day among the Jews. And let's see what he has to say about marriage and divorce and the new standard of the kingdom of heaven. So our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. On a legal website from San Diego, the law firm lists the most common reasons why their clients file for divorce. Now you'll find the statistics are much greater than 100% and that's because um, many people check a number of boxes on their survey. And so I'll give you it in descending order. The reason why their clients divorce. Lack of commitment. 73% of the respondents said that was the reason they divorced. Argue too much, 56%. Porn addiction, 56%. Infidelity, 55%. They got married too young, 46%. Unrealistic expectations, 45%. Foolish expenditure of money, 45%. Lack of equality in the relationship, 44%. Lack of preparation for marriage, 41%. Domestic violence or abuse, 25%. They also, another interesting statistic is that they found that each liter of alcohol consumed in a given year increases the chance of divorce by 20%. Each liter increases it by 20%. Mental illness increases the likelihood between 20 and 80%. Video game addiction is also an increasing factor in divorce. Years ago, even in our society, years ago, 
um, courts would grant divorces only in the case cases of adultery, alcoholism, drug abuse, and desertion, and for criminal behavior. But in 1969, the state of California established what is called a no-fault divorce. A spouse no longer has to go to court and prove that their spouse did something wrong in order for the courts to grant them a divorce. Today, all states recognize no-fault divorces. It is simply enough to say, we have irreconcilable differences. Or another way of saying that is we won't try to make things work. And so we're quitting. Another common reason for divorce is incompatibility. That is, we simply can't get along and we're not going to try. When Jesus spoke these words in Matthew 5, 31, the divorce situation was just as bad, if not worse, than it is today. Jesus stated that the Old Testament law said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. The Jews of his day practiced divorce for any reason. For example, um, if a man married a woman and she couldn't bear children, that was enough reason to divorce her. I can't have children with you, see you later. And all he would have to do was simply write out on a piece of paper and hand it to her, and that was sufficient, and she would be divorced from him. We're going to read that in just a minute. Uh, another reason, if a man found another woman more attractive than his wife, sufficient reason for divorce. Even if his wife simply burned the toast in the morning, or the bagel, depending on what they ate, it was sufficient reason for a divorce. Simply had to give a certificate of divorce and the marriage would be over. You say, well, things aren't that easy. Well, yeah, they are. You can go online today and for $149, you can do a, a, um, get a self-help help kit and file your own divorce in a matter of minutes. If your situation is more complicated, there are plenty of lawyers advertising their services for low-cost divorce. One advertisement states, when you've decided on divorce, we offer low-cost, self-help, trauma-free, complete service. Terms are available, and you can use your MasterCard or Visa. And so the question to me and to you is this, is the institution of marriage worth saving? If marriage is simply a human invention, then it's gonna change just like the wind. It's going to be like the seasons, changeable. It'll be like clothing styles, you put them on, you take them off. You change you know, at will. What was in style yesterday may not be in style today. But if marriage is of divine origin, which I state to you it is, then we'd better listen to what God has to say about it. The question about marriage and divorce was posed to Jesus in Matthew 19. If you have a Bible, turn there with me. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees had heard what Jesus said, and they came to him with additional questions. And the Pharisees, verse 3, came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And it's interesting, Jesus' response uh, takes us all the way back to the beginning of creation. 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the, at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And so in answering their question, Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning of time, to the beginning of creation. And, and he looks back at God's original purpose of marriage. For it was God who invented marriage. It's not a man-made thing. God invented it. And his purpose in creation was for one man, and I'm going to emphasize this in our generation, for one man to marry one woman. Not same sex. You cannot reproduce. You cannot fill the earth um, you cannot be fruitful and multiply in a same-sex marriage. So clearly, that was not God's intention either. One man with one woman. He is to be married to his own wife, and the two become one flesh. And it's very interesting that when you say in your marriage vows, I do, and the woman says, I do, that is God putting the two of you together. It is God's purpose and his plan for you to remain together until death parts you. It is God who joins together a husband and a wife. He instituted marriage at the beginning. Marriage is God's idea, not man's idea. And he hasn't changed his purpose from the beginning. It's the same today. God's will is that a person should have one and only one living partner in marriage. We read this also in the New Testament. In uh, Ephesians 5, it says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, so he's talking to men, so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The relationship should not be severed by man or by man's current divorce laws. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19.6, What God joins together, let not man separate. Marriage is intended by God to continue until the death of one or the other spouse. End of story. It's very simple. When he said to the Pharisees, from the beginning it was not so, um, let me read to you uh, what he is referring to uh, when, they, when they said, didn't Moses um, allow for a divorce? So let's read that passage. It's in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, 
If the latter husband, so if the second husband, detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. So in this passage, Moses gave permission. And Jesus said why he gave permission. It was because of the hardness of their heart. They were going to do it anyway. And so he said, look, we'll make a plan where at least there is a certificate of divorce, where there's a legal binding way where she can be put away or put out of the marriage. And the Jews took that permission and, and to mean divorce for any reason at all. And it was not given because society was advancing and was growing. Rather, Jesus said it was because of the hardness of the people's hearts. That's why this was allowed. It was because of rampant sin expressed in marriage that God permitted, but never approved, Moses to allow for divorce in the Old Testament. It's because of the hardness of heart today that so many people find their marriage ending in divorce. Think about it. Why do people divorce? What's the reason? I gave you a whole list. Generally, in divorce, there is fault on both sides. When they say no fault, I go, mm 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 mm. You know, yeah. Almost always, there is fault on both sides. There are, there are occasions, and I know people, who were not at fault in, um, in a divorce situation. But most often, there's fault on both sides. When a couple says they're incompatible, or they have irreconcilable differences. It's just a more palatable way of saying we're too selfish to work things out and we're not committed to each other enough to see this through to the end. In almost every case, if we are honest, people get divorced because they are selfish, unbroken, irreconcilable, and uncommitted. And so is their spouse. And you say, well, they just can't get along. Well, you know, when you have two sinners standing at the front committing themselves to each other and saying, I do, and those two sinners now live together, I will guarantee you that sparks will fly. I asked you how many of you said those vows, and almost, you know, a lot of you put up your hands. How many of the same, you don't have to put up your hands for this one, but how many of you who have been married or are married have had problems at some point in your marriage where you had to work out differences, where you had to work out problems, where guess what, guys? You really weren't right. Or, or gals, you weren't right. Or you were both wrong, okay? Every marriage will have its problems. Every marriage will have its difficulties. Every marriage will have sparks that fly. First at the beginning, sparks are flying and everybody's in love. And then, as, as someone once said, I, I said to her on Saturday night, I do, and on Sunday morning I woke up and I said, what did I do? You know. And we're often like that. We're sinners, and you can expect two sinners coming together, there are going to be problems. But those same two sinners have one Lord, and we can come to him together and see our problems worked out. Problems 
Selfishness manifests itself in a myriad of ways in the home. One day, either the husband or wife throws in the towel and says, I don't have to put up with this anymore. I'm through. I don't love you anymore. I'm not putting up with you anymore. I want a divorce. And most people don't start out thinking that way. They don't start out the day that they say I do, thinking, yeah, you know, it's coming. I'm going to be divorced soon. And yet, about 50% of marriages never make it across the finish line. What happens every day after the couple says, I do, is critical in determining whether a marriage will last or will be one more statistics, one more of the statistics of failure. So I want you to think about some statements I'm going to make here. If you're married or you're thinking about getting married, I want you to think through these statements and consider whether these statements would help you in your marriage. I'm going to talk first to the husbands. If a husband makes it his goal to follow the Lord and put the Lord first in the marriage, the marriage is more likely to succeed. If a husband truly makes it his aim to love his wife as Christ loved the church, what woman wouldn't want to live with a husband like that? If a husband imitates Christ's love for the church by loving his wife in spite of her faults, in spite of her failings, and in spite of her sins, and if he sacrifices himself for her and lives with her, with her best interest in mind, there's a great chance for success in that marriage. If a husband seeks to meet the needs of his wife ahead of his own needs and puts her first in his love and care, he is on the right path of a lasting marriage. If a husband seeks to live with his wife in an understanding way, listening to her fears, her concerns, her cares, and if he is humble, broken, and willing to confess and forsake his own sins, he's laying a good foundation in his marriage. If a husband protects his wife from evil, from foolish people, from physical and spiritual dangers, he's providing a safe environment for a healthy marriage. If a husband encourages his wife to trust the Lord, to pray, to read, to understand the scripture, to call upon God in times of trouble, to believe the truth and reject lies, he is the spiritual leader and there's a great potential for both of them to cross the finish line together. If a husband treats his wife with honor and with respect, encourages her to exercise her spiritual gift and tries to see her succeed in every way, he will have for himself a virtuous wife who is to be praised. If a husband cherishes and nourishes his wife, caring for her in a gentle, tender, and kind way, treating her as the weaker vessel but not helpless vessel, expressing his love for her in practical ways, and telling her he loves her, there's a great chance for a successful marriage. Praise is better than criticism. Appreciation is better than condemnation. Being courteous is better than being rude. All of these are factors in a successful marriage. Good manners, proper hygiene, 
Clean speech also go a long way. Purity of thoughts, holy behavior, avoiding sexual temptation are all essential ingredients for a prosperous marriage. Tender affection displayed only for her, eyes that behold her beauty, lips that speak encouraging words, and love that satisfies her needs ahead of your own are the building blocks of a permanent marriage. So those are all positive things, nothing negative in any of that. There is no reason, if you follow that, there would be no reason for divorce. But if you live like this, really there's no reason why she would want to divorce you. So men, I encourage you to live like this. I have some counsel for wives too, it's shorter. If a wife makes it her goal to follow the Lord and put the Lord first, again, both of them putting the Lord first, the marriage is more likely to succeed. If a wife truly makes it her aim to love her husband and submits herself to him in everything, what husband wouldn't want to be married to her? If a, if a wife loves her husband in spite of his faults, in spite of his failings, and in spite of his sins, if she works together for him and not against him, it will lead to success in the marriage. If a wife seeks to meet the needs of her husband and she does not use her body as a weapon to get her own way, she's on the right path to a lasting marriage. If a wife displays a meek and gentle spirit and does not have a contentious spirit, her husband will not be searching for an isolated corner of the rooftop. And it would lead to a happy marriage. If a wife excels in virtue, demonstrates godliness in the house, and feeds on the truth, it's a recipe for blessing and triumph. If a wife actively seeks the spiritual counsel of her husband and seeks to put it into practice, she's strengthening the marriage and not tearing it down. If a wife renders to her husband the affection due to him and seeks to allow him to be satisfied by her, she will be doing all she can to keep him from the temptation that Satan is obviously going to throw his way. Again, praise is better than criticism. Appreciation is better than condemnation. Being courteous is better than being rude. Again, this is a good recipe for a prosperous marriage. Once again, for wives as well, good manners, proper hygiene, clean speech also go a long way. Purity of thoughts, holy behavior, avoiding sexual temptation are essential ingredients for a permanent marriage. So there's similarities, but there are differences as well. Again, in the case of women, if you live like this, there should be no reason why a husband would want to divorce you. And certainly there is no biblical reason for divorce in any of those things that I mentioned. When husbands and wives treat each other this way, or these ways, what they are doing is they're saying to the other person, you're worth it. You're worth it to me. I want to see us reach the end together. Problems, trials, disagreements, temptations, all of these things are going to come in a marriage. I'll guarantee you that. But the solution is not divorce. The solution is brokenness, humility, confessing of sins, and seeking forgiveness. Divorce is not an option in these circumstances. Many people, many Christians, uh, recognize how easy it is for Satan to get a foothold in a marriage and purpose, as the scripture says, not to let 
anger, not to let the sun go down on their anger. And so they make it a practice, they make it a habit to make sure that any differences, any difficulties are settled before the day ends. It's good practice to have. The Pharisees of Jesus' day taught divorce for any reason. When Jesus came, he tightened the divorce law. He expects those in the kingdom to display a righteousness which is higher than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so it's important to note that he is speaking to believers here. And so the question arises, is there ever any reason allowed for divorce? Do we believe at Calvary Bible Chapel no divorce under any circumstance? Well, Jesus answers the question here for us. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. God allows for divorce when the marriage has been broken by sexual immorality. Now, it's interesting to note that, that um, divorce is not a requirement in a situation like this. I actually have a dear friend who was unfaithful to his wife for a number of years. I think I've already told you this story before, that he used to, he took up with another woman, and he used to bring his dirty laundry to his wife's, he wasn't, he wasn't divorced, to his, his wife's doorstep and leave it there. And she would actually wash it, full iron it, and fold it, and have it ready for him on Monday morning. And she did this every week. She's a, an angel. <laughs> and it was through her love and her prayers that he broke him. What she was doing ultimately broke him. And he forsook his sin and came back and they are happily married to this, to this day. So as I say, God allows for divorce. It's not a requirement for grace, as this woman did uh, or demonstrated, can cover a multitude of sins. But divorce is permitted in such a case. The term for sexual immorality is the Greek word pornea, which is the broadest term that scripture uses for sexual immorality. It includes adultery, fornication, bestiality, homosexuality, incest, and it is the word from which we derive our word pornography, and it includes sexual unfaithfulness of any kind. Jesus offers no other exception. If your husband or your wife is faithful to you, Divorce is not an option. Sexual immorality is the only exception clause for two Christians. And as we stated, even then divorce is not required. If the sinning spouse is broken before God, is repentant and confesses and forsakes his sin, grace is able to triumph even over sexual immorality. Repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation are a welcome alternative to divorce. But for some people, and we have to be fair about this, sexual unfaithfulness is to them the ultimate betrayal. And they feel so violated that they cannot remain in a broken marriage relationship like that. And the Lord in his grace permits divorce in the case of immorality. 
God himself, we know from the scripture in Jeremiah 3.8, divorced Israel because of her unfaithfulness and unrepentant immorality. And yet it says in the scripture, he will receive her back again in the future. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus forbids divorce except in the, ca except in the case of uh, sexual immorality. I want to suggest to you this morning that the scripture gives several scenarios for us to consider on the subject of divorce and remarriage. And so I want to include the remarriage part in this because people have questions, well, if I get divorced, can I remarry? So let's take a look at what the scripture has to say. First of all, as we've already stated multiple times, sexual immorality is a reason that Jesus gave that gives a person a right or, or they can divorce in a case of sexual immorality. If this were the only scripture about this topic, we would conclude that there is one and only one reason for divorce in all of the scripture, but that's not quite the way it is. So in the case of sexual immorality, I want to just look at it this way. Can a person divorce? And the simple answer is that it's not required, but it is permitted for the innocent spouse. What about remarriage? What if a person is the faithful partner? Let's just say it's the wife, she's faithful, the husband divorced her because, or they were divorced because of his sexual immorality. Is she then free to remarry? And the answer is yes, she would be permitted to remarry. If the Lord has allowed her to divorce, it's to free her up so that she might be able to be remarried again without violating the scripture in any way. Otherwise, God would have given separation as the recommended path for her. Many Bible students believe that there's another exception, and it's found in 1 Corinthians 7. And so let me state it this way. There are two unsaved people who are married. One becomes a Christian, and the unsaved spouse is unwilling to live with a Christian. So let's set up the passage before we look at it. What happens if both spouses were unsaved when they got married? One of them becomes a believer, and the other does not. Should the believer remain married to the unbeliever, or is this now a question of being unequally yoked? Should they just divorce because they're unbelievers? And so this, it complicates things a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 12 through 16, we read this. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So the answer to the question is actually pretty straightforward. The two people were married as unbelievers. One becomes a believer and the one becomes a believer, and the other, who is an unbeliever, says, That's okay with me. I still love you. 
I want you to remain as my wife. And so the wife is to say, in a case like that, therefore I will stay with you. I will not file for divorce. You say, well, they're unequally yoked. Yeah, but God says it. In this case, it's okay. And so the same thing would apply to a, to a husband. If he gets saved, he is not to divorce his wife if she's willing to carry on living with him. But if the situation is different than that, and so you have a husband and wife, the wife becomes a believer, the husband says, wait a minute, you were a party animal before this. You were wild, just like I am. And uh, I, I had no intention of ever marrying a Christian. Are you kidding me? I, I can't live like this. You're out of here. The wife is free to leave. She is free to be divorced in a case like that. And then ultimately, she would be free to remarry. So again, I ask the question, is divorce permitted in a situation like this? It's not required, but it is permitted. What about remarriage? Well, again, if the Lord allows for the divorce, he is allowing them to uh, remarry without consequence of adultery in a case like that. Okay, there's a third scenario. I think it's obvious, but I'm going to state it anyway. What about in the case of the death of a spouse? In the case of a death of a spouse, let's say two people are married, they're both Christians. The husband dies. Can the wife remarry? After all, she was married. Well, death ends that relationship, and the scripture says that in Romans 7. Let me read it. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband. In other words, she must remain married to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, even though she is married, she has married another man. And so in a case like this, divorce isn't the issue at all. Death is the issue. And so is that woman then free to remarry? And the answer is, of course. She's no longer under that law to her husband. And the same thing would apply to a man if his wife dies. All right. So I began listing other circumstances of divorce and remarriage. And I'm telling you, it becomes so complicated that you need the wisdom of Solomon and the patience of Job to, to go through every single possible scenario. And so we have actually written a paper back in a long time ago, and I'm going to hand it out. In fact, uh, Matt, if I could ask you and maybe another brother to take this, I'm going to give to you the official stance of divorce and remarriage that was put out by Calvary Bible Chapel and remains to this day. But there are some things I want to just touch on as these are being handed out. Sin has complicated so many areas of life, including marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There are biblical grounds for divorce, but many have pursued unbiblical grounds for divorce. And so I want to emphasize this very, very clearly because the scripture is so plain on this issue. If a person has pursued an unbiblical uh, reason for divorce, the wife burned the toast, whatever it happens to be, something along those lines, and they're divorced, 
Biblically, they are not permitted to remarry. A person in that situation who remarries is actually committing adultery. I'm gonna just say a man, okay? If his wife burns a toast, he divorces her over some trivial thing, and he remarries, he is committing adultery. His new wife is committing adultery with him. Scripture is plain about that. Um, once, one who obtains an unbiblical divorce and remarries is guilty of adultery. Then there are circumstances of people who were married, divorced, remarried, possibly divorced again, remarried. I mean, it, it gets very complicated. Prior to salvation. And, and the subject can become quite complicated. Um, truly, all sins can be forgiven. The sin of adultery can be forgiven. The sin of marriage and divorce and remarriage and divorce and remarriage can be forgiven. All of those things are true in the scripture. But Paul wrote, wrote to the Corinthians and said, and such were some of you. And he talks about how the Lord has forgiven them and they are now holy, they're, they're saved. And, and the Bible is very plain that when a person trusts in the Lord for salvation, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There may still be consequences in that person's life of what they can and cannot do. And so that's the issue that we have to look at in the case of uh, divorce and remarriage. So the question of remarriage will depend on all of the circumstances surrounding their individual case. And so I want to just throw some things out to you here for your consideration. We're not, we don't have time to go through them all, but just to think about as you think in terms of how complicated things get. John the Baptist was killed. Do you remember why John the Baptist was killed? Yeah. Well, it's because he didn't, she didn't like him, but why didn't she like him? Yeah. Right. And it's very interesting. I'm glad you said it that way. So John the Baptist went to Herod and said that, that he was not permitted uh, to be married to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. When he said that, Herod had been married for several years. And yet, by the Holy Spirit, John said that that woman still belonged to the other man as wife. And so this is God's, God speaking through John the Baptist. So I want you to think about that when it comes to marriage and divorce. Another passage I want you to think about is the woman at the well. How many husbands had she had? And, and, and who was she living with at the time? Someone else who wasn't her husband. <laughs> okay, it was a very complicated situation. Could that woman be saved? Yes, and she clearly was saved. Could that woman be remarried? It's a whole other story, okay? <laughs> You have to look at the situation individually. The adulterous woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. It's another situation. Was she a married woman? Probably. Was she an unmarried woman? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. She was committing adultery in this situation. And could she be saved? 
Jesus said to her, go and sin no more. You know, clearly he was forgiving her sins, including what she had just done. David and Bathsheba. It was an adulterous relationship. God not only forgave David, but actually blessed the woman that he had had the affair with. Ultimately, she became the, the mother of Solomon. And all of the scriptures that we have considered this morning, if you put them all together and you look at them individually and, and corporately, you'll see that the issue of divorce and remarriage is very, very complicated. Grace can overrule sin, for sure. But there are consequences to our actions. I remember years ago I was um, teaching in the intern program, not about this particular subject, but I said something in class one day about how when a person comes to know the Lord, their sins are forgiven. God makes them a new creature. All old things have passed away. All, behold, all things become new. But I said, we have to be honest about this, that there are still consequences to our sins. And one of the interns said, no, that's not true. If God is forgiven, everything is clean and wiped away. And I said, well, that part is true. You're forgiven in God's eyes, but you may still suffer consequences of previous sins. If you were an alcoholic, you still might die of cirrhosis of the liver. That, God doesn't necessarily take that away. If you were in some kind of complicated married relationship, you may be forgiven, but there still may be consequences that you live with the rest of your life. There are brothers in um, Africa who, in their culture, it was permissible to have many wives. And they got saved. What do they do? Put out nine of their ten wives? There's lots of complications that come because of sin. And so we have to be fair about these things and look at them in Scripture and deal with individuals on an individual basis, but clearly following the Scripture um, the scripture's teaching. So other questions arise um, about marriage. What about the situation where two Christians can't get along? Can't they just get a divorce? I think what they need is counseling. The same counsel Paul gave to two contentious women would apply here. I implore Eudia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, a lot of divorce cases would end if people would simply go back to the scripture, be humble, be broken, and come before the Lord and have the same mind as the Lord. What about situations where there's abuse, physical, sexual, verbal? Well, obviously counsel is needed here too. Um, but many times when um, the relationship becomes heated, abusive, irritating, or where a spouse's physical, mental, or emotional well-being is at stake, what is the answer? Not necessarily divorce. And the scripture is actually plain about this in 1 Corinthians 7. It says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so there are cases where it is unsafe or unwise to remain living together in close proximity to a spouse who is clearly out of control. In such cases, divorce is not given as an option in the scripture. 
If a wife leaves her husband in these circumstances, she is to remain unmarried with the goal of ultimately being reconciled to her husband. That's what the scriptures teach. Prayer for the sinning spouse, grace towards the sinning spouse, may overcome his wicked behavior. The goal is to seek their repentance and their restoration to the Lord and to each other. So the main issue we're considering the passage this morning is that the kingdom of heaven has a higher standard than the law and then our current world situation and places a higher value than we might think on marriage. If a spouse divorces for any other reason other than sexual immorality, they remarry, they are committing adultery and causing the other spouse to commit adultery. So we've handed out the paper. You can read it in more detail. One of the things that we state in there um, is I think maybe the last paragraph, and I'm just going to read it. Many complicated marital problems arise which are too involved to cover in a paper like this and certainly in a sermon like this. Ultimately, the elders will have to investigate thoroughly, try to hear all sides of the problem, then make a decision in the fear of God. And the rest of the saints should recognize really that uh, in doing that, we've tried to look at the scripture, look at the specific situation, and, uh, and not create disunity by taking sides against them. Well, that's a very, sounds like a very negative, but it's not a negative sermon at all, it's very positive. The purpose of the sermon is that those who are married should remain married until death do us part. And so I want to ask those of you who are married to do something for me today. Um, I was going to have you come to the front, but I won't do that. I won't embarrass everybody. When you go home today, go back and dust off your vows. Take them out and repeat them to your husband. Repeat them to your wife. And say to your wife, do you remember the day when we were so in love? We looked at each other and said, nothing will ever get in the way of us reaching the finish line together. Remember the day when you stood with your spouse and you made a solemn vow before the Lord? You vowed your faithfulness for life. You should do everything possible to make your marriage days marriage days of heaven on earth. And so dust off your vows. Repeat them to your wife or to your husband today at home with real meaning. And say, you know what? I meant it then. I meant it now. And nothing will stand in the way of us finishing this that we have started. I promise to be your faithful husband or your faithful wife. I promise to love and comfort you, to honor you and to keep you, to have and to hold from this day forward in sickness and in health, in poverty or in wealth, for richer, for poorer, for better or worse, forsaking all others, cleaving only to you, as long as we both shall live. And then you may kiss your bride. <laughs> when that happens, there's applause. So just imagine that when you say that to your husband or to your wife today, after you have committed again to each other, just imagine the applause of heaven because this is God's intention for your marriage. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you. We thank you for the institution of marriage that you have um, allowed us to have this kind of intimate relationship with one other person in life. And we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the marriages that are here. I pray for those who have not yet committed themselves to marriage. They have not found the spouse that you intend them to have. We pray, Lord, that you might bring to them godly spouses who would have the same intention to make things work all through their lives long and that they would vow to each other a commitment for life and that they would stay together through thick and through thin and looking only to you, Lord, that you might bring them to the finish line and cross together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.